Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Uh, As we have been going through Luke from Christmas, uh, looking at the life of Jesus, we have seen, um, as Luke has recorded for us his carefully researched history, the events of Jesus' life. Now, as we approach chapters 22, 23, and 24, we come to the end of that life. So let's take up the story at the crucifixion and in verse 26, chapters 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed after him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance and watched these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to to their decision and actions. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock one which no one had been led. 
It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Amen. This indeed is the word of God. Imagine, uh, if you will, for a short moment, walking down the street, and you come upon a crowd of people, all praising in front of you, singing. You stop and you ask one of the people in that crowd, what's going on? And they respond that we're praising God for, for what he has done. So intrigued, you ask, well, what has he done? He sent his son to die on the gallows. For our sins comes the answer. How would you respond? Or imagine going to a church building, maybe a well-known one, and outside that building there is this huge statue of old Sparky. How would you feel? You see, we have become in the West so accustomed to the sight of the cross that it's hard for us to comprehend just how astonishing It would have been for a few fishermen from a backwater part of a far-off province of the largest empire in the world at the time to suggest that the one creator of the world had sent his Messiah into the world and that he died. And how did he die? He was publicly executed by crucifixion. Crucifixion was the ultimate punishment in the Roman world. It was kept for terrorists for the lowest form of scum that was available. The very thought that God's son or a king would be crucified would be absurd. Anyone who received the death penalty was obviously a bad egg and deserved it. Roman citizens were not allowed to be executed. Only bad people were executed by crucifixion. And there is no way that God would allow his son to go through the shame of crucifixion, is there? How stupid would that be? After all, he wouldn't be much of a God if he wasn't able to stop himself being crucified. From the standpoint of the Roman or the Greek or the Jew, the idea that God's Messiah was crucified was most likely going to result in total indignation or laughter at the very idea. Indeed, there is a a piece of anti-Christian graffiti carved into the wall of of a Roman prison prison cell from uh, about a hundred years after uh, the death of Jesus. And this piece of graffiti depicts a man worshipping beside a cross. And on that cross, there is another man with a donkey's head. And the inscription written in Greek underneath it is Aleximenos, which is whoever this is addressed to, worships God. For us, the idea of the cross as a symbol of Christianity is totally normal. But in the first century, the very idea would have been unthinkable. A bit like a major religion now having the gallows as its main symbol. Yet almost 2,000 years after the events described by Luke and by the other gospel writers, here we are. We sit in a Christian church and have no trouble understanding that the cross that symbol of shame and of torture, that ultimate punishment in the Roman Empire of long ago is indeed the way Jesus died. 
And what's more, from a few fishermen from Galilee who preached Christ crucified, that seemingly absurd message has spread so much that Christianity is now the largest religion in the entire world and continues to grow and spread, as we've been hearing about China. People continue to believe in Jesus every single day, the Jesus who was crucified. But are they correct? Is this real? Should we believe it? From a historical perspective, it is a certain fact that Jesus was crucified sometime in and around A.D. 30. Luke, in his very carefully researched history that we've been going through, records for us these events surrounding his death. The other gospel writers tell us the same thing. Even non-Christian writers of the same period record for us the fact that Jesus died in Jerusalem. Indeed, it would be only a few years within the first decade of the, after the events of Good Friday that the followers of Jesus would be learning and quoting the very first known Christian creed. The Apostle Paul records it for us in chapter 15 of his first uh, epistle to the Corinthians. And he tells us there that it wasn't something he himself came up with. It was passed on to him. He received it, and then he is passing it on. Let me quote the first part of it. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so it continues. But it shows us that very early after these events themselves, it was committed to credo, to memory of the followers of Jesus, that he had died, that he was buried in the tomb, that he was as dead as dead can possibly be. Islam may seek to claim that there was a bit of trickery going on and that Jesus was replaced by Judas on the cross, but that is plain historical nonsense. Jesus of Nazareth rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the Sunday before the Passover. And after eating the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, he was arrested, tried, crucified, and laid in a tomb. That is history. But what does it mean? Why is it significant for you as you, you sit here today? What has a crucifixion so, so long ago to do with the 21st century? We don't even have the death penalty anymore. And after all, there were countless crucifixions under imperial Roman rule, weren't there? Why is one more significant than any of the others? Well, some of these questions we will answer today. But for a fuller answer, you will indeed have to come back next week. But today, let's look at this death that Luke records for us. The first thing we need to look at, as the early Christians said in their creed, that, the, that Jesus, the, the one whom they were referring to, was no mere man, but they called him Christ or Messiah. From the beginning of the gospel, Luke has been taking us on a journey to find the identity of this figure he writes about. He has shown us his birth details, his lineage from the line of David, the great king of Israel. He has recorded for us his miracles. He healed the sick, he commanded the waters, he raised the dead, he allowed the blind to see. And he records some of the things that he taught about the kingdom of God. Indeed, this Jesus not only taught about the coming kingdom, but he himself claimed that the kingdom had arrived in him. 
Luke records for us the events of his baptism, his transfiguration. It records him entering Jerusalem like the Messiah was meant to on the donkey. Everything that Luke has recorded to this point has been there to help us see that this Jesus is indeed the Christ. The Messiah who had been promised from long ages past had now arrived to bring salvation to his people, to liberate and to rule. Jesus was the anointed son of God who would rescue his people, bring them blessing from God. He would overthrow their enemies. He would bring them peace and prosperity. And as Luke has recorded for us, as we followed it through, he has been showing us many of the misconceptions that there were at the time. We've seen how Jesus saw his role as, as the Christ, as the Messiah, very differently from the expectations of the people of the time. <clears throat> For Jesus would indeed come as a rescuer, as a conqueror, but not in the way they thought. And the result of all these claims was that he made a lot of enemies amongst the Pharisees, and especially amongst the temple authorities in Jerusalem. And so much so that we now find him being arrested and they arrest him and they bring him on trial. Firstly, in chapter uh, 22, 23, the beginning of it, we see that he was tried before the Jewish ruling council, then before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, then before Herod, the puppet king, and then finally before Pilate again. But notice as you scan through these things, for, uh, these verses from chapter 22, verse 66 through to chapter 23 verse 26 how the question is raised many times are you the christ are you the king of the jews verse 67 verse 2 and verse 3 and when uh, jesus is taken away to be crucified outside the city we find again as he hangs there the people mock him and the issue of his, his identity comes up again chapter 23 verse 35 the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him they said he saves others let him save himself if he is the christ the chosen one verse 37 the roman soldiers mock him if you are the king of the jews save yourself they say verse 38 the sign which was meant of course to be the crime for which he was dying was placed above his head what did it read this is the king of the jews and finally, one of the two thieves mocks him in verse 39. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And what's more, we find that Jesus has been crucified for no good reason. Twice, Pilate said he was innocent of any crime. Herod found nothing wrong with him. The second thief rebukes the first and declares that Jesus is innocent. And the Roman centurion, who had witnessed the whole affair, after Jesus dies, declares, surely Jesus was, was a righteous man. That is an innocent man. So we're left with the question, why? Why did, he, why did the one who could command the waves to obey him not do anything about this? Why did the one who had the power to stop death not stop this outrage? Why did the Father allow this to happen if this was the one whom he declared to be his son 
surely we must see that even as he hangs there in agony, Jesus, Jesus could have, if he desired to, come down from the cross. He had the power to do it. He was the Christ, the, the deliverer of God's people. Surely the Christ would not die like this. So why then does he willingly submit to the public shame and to death itself? What kept him on that cross? Was it the nails? Why did he go through it if he is the Christ? Well, the answer lies in the fact that he is not there of his own accord, but rather in obedience to his Father's will. Look at verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. You see, Luke has been telling us from the beginning that Jesus has come from the Father into the world to do his work. That he has been following the plan of the Father throughout his life from the, from the very earliest times when he got lost in the temple. Mary and Joseph find him there, speaking with the priests. And what does he tell them? Didn't you know I would be in my Father's house? Through his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry, his final parable as he entered Jerusalem of the wicked tenants in the vineyard where he told us that he is the son entering that vineyard to be killed by those wicked tenants sent by the father. And then as he entered the garden to pray before the time would come for him to be killed, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus is hanging here on that cross. He is submitting himself to the shame and the mocking cries of the people and he submits himself finally to death to fulfill the will of his Father. Indeed, at Pentecost, Peter would stand up and preach to the crowd that day that Jesus was delivered over to sinful men to be crucified in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Isaiah, all those years ago in chapter 53, told us that it was God's will to crush that servant figure. What made Jesus hang on that cross, even when he was the Christ, even when he was innocent? It was the fact that he was doing his Father's will. He is there because he must be. The Father has sent him into the world to be a servant, to seek and to save the lost, and we find him now accomplishing his Father's purpose. How? How would his death bring about the saving of the lost? How does this crucifixion show Jesus as the servant? Well, notice the two details that Luke records for us in, in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 23. It was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. <clears throat> the darkness that is mentioned here from the sixth hour, that is 12, 12 o'clock noon, until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m., it is not, as some have suggested, a solar eclipse. For to start with, the Passover happened at a time of full moon. That means that it was impossible that there was an eclipse of the sun during a full moon. Also, eclipses don't last for three hours. This darkness was something else. When the sun should have been at its highest, at its strongest, there was darkness over the land as Jesus hung on that cross. 
But what does this darkness mean if it's not an eclipse? Well, all this is taking place around the time of the Jewish Passover. When the nation remembered what had happened when God brought them out of bondage in Egypt. And if you remember correctly, the final plague God sent uh, on the Egyptians before the, the, the death plague, the, the death of the firstborn, was the plague of darkness. Darkness in the Bible is speaking of judgment. This darkness is a supernatural sign that what is taking place on the, on the cross is judgment. As Christ hangs there, he is suffering judgment. And the creation itself witnesses to this fact as the author of creation is subject to this judgment. So the creation itself is affected. The light of the world is being extinguished and so the sun, the, the light source of the planet, stops shining. Something cosmic is taking place as Christ hangs here to do his Father's will. And that cosmic plan means that Jesus is not just submitting himself to death, but to judgment. God is pouring out his judgment on the man on the cross. As in Egypt, as God sent his judgment on the Egyptians, it was only through the death of a lamb and its blood painted on the door frames that meant those families in Egypt would escape that final judgment that final death of the firstborn. And on the cross, as Jesus hangs there, he is that final Passover lamb. The one whose blood would allow God's anger to pass over others. Jesus is being judged. He is suffering, even when he is innocent, in accordance with the will of his Father. Remember back to that last Passover that Jesus ate with his disciples in the upper room? Remember the words that he spoke? He gave them bread. This is my body that is broken for you. And then he gave them the cup and he told them, this is the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. You see, Jesus is not being ju just being judged. He's not just suffering because God is some capricious deity who likes to abuse his own son. Let us be very clear on this fact. Jesus is suffering for others. He is taking the judgment that others should have taken. This is the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. That is his followers. Jesus is saving others from judgment judgment by his own death. He is taking the punishment that he did not deserve for people who should rightly have been judged. The innocent is suffering for the guilty so that the guilty will go free. Let's go back to our creed. Christ died for our sins. And that is what we see here in the final moments on the cross. Jesus willingly submits to the agony and shame that others would be free from punishment. Save yourself, they mock him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. How desperately ironic. But those mockers cannot see that it is by him willingly submitting himself to this death that he is even offering them the chance of forgiveness. <coughs> It is by his death that he is saving them from judgment 
much like Barabbas. He was guilty. He deserved the punishment. But Barabbas' place on that cross, on his cross, was taken by somebody else. And so Barabbas was free from punishment. The spotless Lamb of God substituted for others. But then notice also the detail about the curtain of the temple being torn in two. <clears throat> As Jesus gives himself up in death. What is the significance of that? Well, remember that the temple, that temple structure was the place that God was said to dwell in the midst of his people. It was the place that the people would come to make atonement for their sins. That curtain was a huge no entry sign that told them that they could not enter the presence of God, that God could not dwell with his people without a sacrifice. And every year, the high priest would make a sacrifice for the people. Year in, year out, the same thing. Nobody could enter the temple without the blood of bulls and goats. Nobody could enter God's presence without atonement. And now that great no entry sign that the people had known from the very beginning in the tabernacle in the wilderness with Moses and Aaron, it was taken away. No longer was there this need of constant sacrifice, of constant atonement, of year in, year out rituals. No longer was there the need of blood, the blood of bulls and goats to make atonement for the people. No longer was there any more need for that priest to intercede every year. For that curtain torn in two pieces from top to bottom was the symbol of a new way being opened. A new way for human beings to be able to enter the presence of the most holy God. It was the end of an old covenant with its rituals and its priests and the beginning of a new covenant. A new agreement. A covenant through the once for all time sacrifice of Jesus. A covenant that would mean that God could be present with his people anywhere. And they could come into his presence at any time. It was the end of the temple system and the beginning of a new way. A new relationship between God and his people. A relationship made possible because the Christ of God died in our place to make atonement for the sins of his people. He offered himself a willing sacrifice. So the great curse of human sinfulness was ended. And now it would be those who would believe in Jesus who would be able to enter that very presence of God, to relate to him as human beings were always meant to relate to him as Adam and Eve had related to God before the fall into sin. An unbroken relationship, atonement, restoration, the answer to human sinfulness, the innocent sacrificed for the guilty, the anger of God fully satisfied, and now Christ's people can be free with a promise of new life, life that was promised to that second thief. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he asked. To which he got the answer, I tell you the truth, today, this very day you'll be with me in paradise. Today you will experience that life of blessing and joy, says Jesus, because you have believed. Believed in me. How very 
simple that thief's faith must have been. And yet now he has this promise as he hangs there in cert with certain death in front of him. But now he knows that judgment passes over. There is no punishment for his sins. And now there is new life with Christ. You see, friends, that's why this, this one crucifixion so long ago matters today. That through his death, he has brought his people out of slavery to sin and death. Out of bondage into new life. God has redeemed his, his people by his Passover lamb. He has given himself as a sacrifice. Christ did indeed liberate his people from oppression. The oppression of a foreign ruler that day. It was at that moment. That moment in human history where God acted. Where he settled the course of all of human history. There in those few hours recorded for us. The course of the past and the course of the future of this world will follow. Jesus, remember, he set out at his transfiguration, which we looked at a few weeks ago, to accomplish his exodus. And through his death, he has accomplished that exodus. He has brought his people out of slavery to sin into new life. Christ has brought them liberation. But it's not from the Romans. It's from the rule of that serpent who is the devil and Satan. That one who deceived the woman in the garden. It was liberation from the dark powers that hold people in bondage. You see, what we have on this cross is that serpent striking at the heel of the son of the woman. Remember that promise in Genesis 3? And that very stroke, which looked like a victory, was the same stroke that crushed his head into feet. And all by the will of the Father. All according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. All through that love that God had for the world that he sent his son into this world to die that his people might live. That we might have the assurance of sins forgiven. That a new way would be opened for us. Through the cross. To the Father. Christ died. That is history. That is a fact. We know that is true. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. That is faith. That is what we believe. That is what we proclaim. Today and forever. That Jesus hung on that tree in obedience to his father's will to save us lost sinners from the judgment we deserve. To bring us into his new kingdom. A kingdom that brings life, blessing and hope to all who will believe. All who will repent and turn away from their own sinful lives and rest on God's unfailing love. That love that sent Jesus to die on that cross. That love that held him there until it was finished. That love that would rather punish him 
than us. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you sent your son into this world to die there for us. That it is through his death that you have made atonement for our sins. That you have washed away our iniquities. We thank you, Lord, that he was crushed for those iniquities. And by his stripes that we have indeed been healed. And we thank you we now, through that cross, through that forgiveness that you have purchased for us, we now have new life in Jesus Christ. The hope of eternal life. The hope of heaven. The hope of a judgment free from punishment. Lord, none of us deserved any of this. And yet you have lavished it upon us by your grace and by your mercy. Help us, Lord, to trust in that cross. To trust in Christ alone and by no other means that we are made right in your sight. For we ask it in Christ's name.